This is the Padre Peregrino podcast. Theology from a wandering priest where you can learn scripture from the fathers and traditional catechisms for free. Join Father David Nix here for shows on church reform and world politics, all from the point of view of apostolic Catholicism, the original founded by Christ. This is VLX number 133. We are in Matthew chapter 22, 1 to 14, Into the Highways. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, the Patristic Bible Study, and Ignatian Prayer Series Online. God give you his peace, and omnipotri sefiri, spiritu santi, amen. God, O oh Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In omnipotri sefiri, spiritu santi, amen. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. As you know, we are in Matthew chapter 22, and Father Lapide tells us that we are on this countdown, a three-day countdown to Good Friday. So Jesus is turning up the heat on the chief priests publicly, and they are turning up the heat privately. What do I mean by that? I mean the chief priests are conspiring among themselves. Jesus is speaking openly so that they might convert, and the chief priests are speaking among themselves so that they can plan Jesus' destruction. Isn't that always how it is with a narcissist, that they can never answer you, so they go behind your back. Some things never change. So what we're going to see is that as the chief priests reject the gospel, Jesus is also telling at the same time that he's excoriating the chief priests, he's telling the apostles to go get the really bad Gentiles and the really good Gentiles. We're going to see those two words, good and bad, are in the parable. Maybe you just heard them, maybe you forgot them. But we're going to see that as the chief priests reject the gospel, the apostles are going to be told to go to the outlets, the highways, the byways, and get the good, the high pagans, so to speak, and the low pagans for this new kingdom of baptism, which is the Catholic Church. So remember that the last parable we had in Matthew 21, that was a vineyard being given to new owners, the kingdom of God going from the chief priest to the apostles. Today it's even more romantic and even more global in some sense. It's a wedding feast for a son. So it's specifically from the point of view of God the Father. And I would say it's even crazier that these invited people don't want to come to a wedding feast. Maybe you could say, well, I could understand not wanting to go work in a vineyard, but Imagine saying no to the king's son's wedding. 
So you can kind of use that in the imaginative way, but it's going to be hard for us to talk imaginative way in parables until we get to the passion. So stay with us if you are doing the way of Teresa of Avila or Ignatius of Loyola, even though we're heavy in the study section because it's actually parables. But we're going to get back to the imaginative way. So today, again, we're in Matthew chapter 22. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So the Greek there is basileus, which means king or even an emperor. And what is he setting up? He's setting up in Greek, the Greek there is gamos tuhuio. Gamos tuhuio, well, gamos is that root word of the English gametes. What is a gamete? Gamete is defined as a mature haploid male or female germ cell, which is able to unite with the other in reproduction to form a zygote. But in Greek, in Greek it just means wedding. So this is the emperor's son's wedding. Imagine if you lived in some medieval times or some eastern kingdom and you get invited to the emperor's son's wedding and the emperor is the one setting it up. Again, basileos can mean king or emperor. Now, who is marrying who here? Well, it's God marrying mankind in the incarnation. And who does he start with on this invitation? Of course, the religious leaders of the one true religion he set up and the religious leaders don't want to come to the wedding. And let's see what Father Lapide has to say about this. As I reminded you many times, remember the Catholic Church teaches as infallible whatever the Church Fathers teach unanimously. And so Father Lapide conglomerates all the teachings of the Fathers. So what he gives you is not entirely infallible, but it's pretty close because usually there is unanimity among the Church Fathers on this stuff. So this is how Father Lapide, taken from the church fathers, who are the friends and the inheritors of the, of the doctrine of the apostles who got it from Christ, this is how Father Lapide tells us to interpret this. First, the king, a man, is God the Father, the son of the king. The bridegroom is God's incarnate son, Jesus Christ, whose spouse is the church. Their nuptials were begun in the incarnation of Christ, for in it Christ espoused human nature to himself, hypostatically, and thereby the church, that is, all faithful people to be his spouse mystically by grace. But in heaven these nuptials shall be consummated with glory. So say St. Jerome and St. Gregory. God the Father made a marriage, that is, a wedding feast for Christ, since in Judea and in the whole world he has, through Christ, spread a table of evangelical doctrine and sacraments, especially the sacrament of the Eucharist. To this nuptial feast... The Jews were invited by God through Moses and the prophets as the servants of God, both before and after the incarnation of Christ, that they might believe first that it was about to take place and then that it had taken place. And so, placing their hopes in Christ, repenting and seeking grace for Him from him, they might obtain justice and salvation. So notice right there that the Old Testament always has the goal of the New Testament. Verse 4 Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Father Lapide says, For in olden times, as now, weddings were inaugurated by a sacrifice, and marriage feasts were kept with victims slain and offered in sacrifice. So also the marriage feast of Christ, which is here parabolically described, took its beginning 
from the sacrifice of the cross. And then verses 5 to 7, But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned their city. Okay, so notice that this time the prophets of the Old Testament are those who were killed. Let's remember that it was um, that religion, not the Babylonians or Persians, who usually killed those great and holy Jewish prophets. Now, what is meant by the king destroying those murders and burning their city? You might remember what Father Lapide said at the last VLX, but we have it here again. The field and the farm to which those who were invited went away, ignoring the invitation, signified temporal goods which drew away the Jews from the faith of Christ and from the heavenly goods which he promised. And so they slew the servants of God, that is, the apostles and the first believers, even, indeed, Christ himself. Therefore God sent Titus and Vespasian, who destroyed and killed the Jews as being murderers, and burnt up their city, namely their capital, with the temple of Solomon, which was the wonder of the world. So says St. John Chrysostom. Father Lapide continues, Christ always sets before us in the church a rich spiritual banquet of holy doctrine and grace, abundantly seasoned with sacred readings, sermons, exhortations, and with innumerable examples of every, every kind of virtue, of apostles, martyrs, confessors, virgins, with frequent prayer, meditation, and reception of the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, which, with the sacrifice of the Mass, with such great adornment of the sacred ministers, altars, and temples, and celebrated with the almost heavenly harmony of music and organs and many other things which feed, please, inebriate the souls of the faithful with spiritual delight so that Christianity is to pious individuals a continual festival and banquet. Now, notice right there, is it still valid if you have to go to a low mass in a hotel? Of course, I've offered low masses, the low TLM in hotels. But too often, we modern Catholics say, hey, as long as I can receive the Eucharist, but notice that all of the Catholic Church is really a package deal here for Father, for Father Lapide. He says that the entire uh, wedding feast of the Lamb includes, here on earth in the Catholic Church, the, quote, great adornment of the sacred ministers, altars, and temples. By temples, he means churches. And celebrated with the almost heavenly harmony of music and organs. And so notice that it's, the, really, the goal of the Roman Catholic Church in its worship should be the Solemn High Mass. There are people who've disagreed with me on this, but you can find this in magisterial documents that the low Mass is kind of the bare bones of the norm. The norm for the Roman Rite is the Solemn High Mass with all those servers, a priest, deacon, subdeacon, or really bishop or pope, uh, deacon and subdeacon, all the choir members, all the smoke, all the bells, all the Gregorian chant, all of this is seen, and by the way, surrounded by beautiful cathedrals, this is heaven on earth. Now, of course, it's still heaven on earth if you're offering a low mass in a hotel like me, but it's more appropriate and fitting for the external to meet up with the sacrifice that's actually happening. And that is where the Catholic Church is already, in some sense, heaven on earth, especially when you go to the Solemn High Mass or in the Eastern Rites, the Divine Liturgy. Father Lapide continues, Christ himself, incarnate, is the perennial food and joy of the faithful. For he, 
through the Incarnation, really communicates to them not only all the gifts of his grace, but also himself and all his fullness, and therefore his very deity. John 6.51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Let Christians, therefore, and especially priests and religious, take care to feed and satisfy their souls in these feasts, and serving Christ in holiness and righteousness, and greeting him constantly with a holy kiss, to lead a joyful, happy, and blessed life, so that they may begin here and have a foretaste of that life of beatitude, which by and by will be perfected and consummated in heaven. And then verses 8, 9, and 10 reads, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Father Lapide says, When those who were invited, meaning the Jews, they refused to come to the nuptial table of the evangelical doctrine of Christ because they were not worthy of it. By despising it, they made themselves entirely unworthy of it. Notice also today Matthew 22.9. I take today's title of the VLX from the Douay Rhymes, not the ESV. The Douay Rhymes reads, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, call to the marriage. And verses 8, 9, and 10 are my favorite today, so we're going to come back to this at the very end. But notice again, VLX today is named after the Douay Rhymes, into the highways. Go therefore into the highways. And this is where the apostles are going to find the high pagans and the low pagans to take the place of the chief priests who rejected the kingdom of God, that one true world religion, which in the Old Testament was Judaism, now Catholicism, and they are going to go into the outlets, the highways, the byways, the streets, the gutters, and find all the good and all the bad and bring them into the kingdom. And again, verses 11 to 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So what is that wedding garment that you can't get into heaven without? Protestants say it's faith alone, but the Bible elsewhere actually has the answer, and it's not faith alone. Let's look at Apocalypse chapter 19, verse 8, also known as Revelation 19.8. The ESV reads, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Or in the Dewey Rhymes, it says, the fine linen are the justifications of the saints. Again, that's Apocalypse or Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. So did you notice right there, the Bible says that the linens of the saints are the wedding garments needed to enter the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's their works on earth. It's not saying that you can get to heaven without grace. That would be Pelagianism. But, Right there, it destroys this Protestant notion of faith alone that Luther ironically called sola fide in the Latin. And of course, yes, faith in Christ and the Catholic Church is the foundation. But notice that the notion, this Protestant notion that your works don't play into your judgment or the glory you're going to attain in heaven, please God, that is an anti-biblical invention of people like Luther and Calvin. So notice not only am I saying sola fide is missing from the magisterium, it's an entirely anti-biblical concept 
to deny that our works are part of our judgment and glory if we make it to heaven. It's right there in Apocalypse 19.8. Again, in the ESV, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, or in the DRB, the fine linen are the justifications of the saints. Okay, and then that line, when the king went in to see the guests. Father Lapide summarizes St. John Chrysostom in saying, This shall take place when God shall come to the general judgment at the end of the world to judge and reward or punishment or punish all mankind to beatify or to condemn. So notice the guy in the parable, this guy who tries to get into the wedding feast without the fine linens that is required to get in there. That's the righteous deeds of the saints, St. John tells us, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is silent at his particular judgment. He tries to get into heaven. He thinks he's going to make it. He's not allowed in. And why is he silent? Pope St. Gregory the Great says, He remains silent because in that final encounter of the final rebuke, every argument and excuse must cease. Indeed, because that same one reproves publicly who as witness of the conscience accuses the soul interiorly. So what does that mean? Well, it means that when we are judged right after our death, we will have no explanations or excuses to give to God. Our judgment just comes handed to us. We don't get time to explain. And then who is this one, capital one, of whom Pope St. Gregory the Great speaks? That one is God himself. And what that great pope is saying is that God already warned the bad person or good person in his conscience on earth, and right after death, the person who ignored his conscience will meet the very one who inspired his conscience that he ignored, and that very one he ignored on earth is God himself. How horrible on this earth to ignore our conscience and go off as far as the parable says, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. So many Catholics today think that uh, everything's going to be forgiven in the end. I can go about my business, and God's just going to pretty much let everybody in. No, the fine linens is the justifications of the saints, not for the people who put money ahead of God. doesn't mean it's wrong to make money, but if you place money ahead of God, you're really on the wrong track. Just because... God speaks to your conscience on earth doesn't mean there's another chance after cardiac arrest. Now, some of these people really and truly in this parable really go to hell forever, but that's not just in the parable. Christ is speaking this parable to what happens in reality. Notice the parable says in verse 13 and 14, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So the good news on this parable is that we are not Calvinists who believe in double predestination. We as Catholics believe everyone's called and that God gives sufficient grace even to innocent unbelievers to be saved, even if they haven't heard of the gospel. But granted, it'll be a lot harder for them if they've never met a missionary. But still, it's possible for them to receive grace through perfect contrition and to enter the Catholic Church, at least implicitly, at that last minute through baptism of desire. But we don't know how hard this is, so it's an extremely dangerous route of salvation, and that's why we have to preach the gospel to every creature. We talked previously about that line, for many are called, but few are chosen. I think it was Father Lapide who summarized some of the church fathers to show that everyone is called to salvation, and some are chosen to the evangelical counsels of poverty and chastity and obedience, which greatly increases one's glory in heaven. 
But notice we don't believe, as the Calvinists believe, in this double predestination that God has created some people for hell. That's actually what they believe. Now, of course, it is true God lives in eternity and he knows every decision. So he knows that the conception, and even outside of time, in all of his eternity, where each of us is going to go, heaven or hell. But notice, everyone's called, but some are chosen for very high levels of glory. But everyone's still given the grace to get to heaven. And this is where we as Catholics believe God wills all to be saved. That is in two places in Paul's letters. Now, does that mean everybody is saved? Of course not. The parable just told us, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, how do most priests and bishops... Even the decent middle-of-the-road guys, how do they interpret it? I guarantee you, just go try this. Go ask a decent middle-of-the-road, even a pro-life priest or bishop, what they think about that verse. And this is pretty much the answer you're going to get. Well, yes, that is Jesus warning us in the parable that hell is a possibility, but you can't take from that parable that any human being is actually in hell. Actually. Well, that's a total lie and a heresy. The Council of Trent infallibly states, But though he died for all, yet all do not receive the benefit of his death, but those only to whom the merit of his passion is communicated. As chapter 3, session 6, Council of Trent, written on the 13th of January, 1547, under Pope Paul III, it is infallible. So notice there, Jesus did die for all. Isn't that beautiful? Trent shows that God wills all to be saved. Jesus died not just for the elect who would make it. He even died for the reprobate. He died for every one of us, but not everybody make it. Nate made it. Why? Father Lapide said earlier, they made themselves unworthy of heaven. So notice again, it's an infallible statement of the Catholic Church that there are not only demons in hell, but actual human souls in hell who at the general judgment get their bodies back. Council of Trent again. But though he died for all, yet all do not receive the benefit of his death, but those only to whom the merit of his passion is communicated. And how is that communicated? It's communicated through supernatural faith in Christ and the Catholic Church, given first through baptism, strengthened through the Eucharist, and then confession if someone should commit a mortal sin. And now I'd like to return and finish up with verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The DRB reads, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find call to the marriage. Now the Greek there for highways is diexodos. Diexodos. Notice that hodos, that's the root word there, and it means way or pathway. It's also the exact same word that was used in Acts to describe the early Christians in Antioch, the way. And it's fine with me that Mandalorian copies that. This is the way. With every creed comes a code. So that word hodos just means way. But just like English, you can have prefixes. And in English, if you add dx, it's kind of like exit in English. It's what comes out of the way. And amazingly, in English, we have outlet, where that prefix out then leads to let, meaning something of a pathway. It's the outlet of this pathway. So outlet is truly the best definition for that word, dexhodos, or highways. Basically, Jesus is telling the apostles to go to the outlets of the streets. You can almost picture people, the the slum, the uh, scum of society, scum of the earth, as St. Paul said, getting washed away from the main streets. This is the outlets where Christ tells the apostles to find people. 
And God's like, okay, the chief priests don't want to come to the emperor's son's wedding, so go into the gutters, the sewers, the highways, the byways, and the outlets of these streets, and get both the good and the bad. And yes, notice those two words are there in the Greek. The Greek has both words, ponirus, ponirus is evil, and agathos is good. Go get the, the bad pagans and the good pagans. Now, of course, they have to convert, be baptized, change their lives. But let's look at uh, one of these people from the first 400 years. Mary, who lived in Alexandria, was one of the worst sinners in Egypt at the time. And then she becomes Saint Mary of Egypt. She returns to Christ. She does 50 years of penance in the desert. And this is an example of how you can have uh, a pretty bad person who's called to a very high level of holiness. And so God is willing to take the people who are high pagans already kind of living it, or people like Mary, who I think was kind of a fallen away Catholic in the 4th century, lived a really horrible life, and then became who I think was probably the holiest woman of the 4th century. And I'm going to link my entire reading of the life of St. Mary of Egypt as told by St. Zosimus in the show notes. You can do the audio from my blog linked in the show notes of the entire life of St. Mary of Egypt, and it's a very believable story because it's written by another saint. Now, all through history, we see that when one group of people rejects the true religion, God goes out for others. So this is what we have in Matthew 21 and 22 with these parables. But notice this also happens in Catholic Church history. What happened in the 16th century when Luther and Calvin and King Henry VIII, when they brought millions of people away from Christ's Catholic Church into Protestantism, it was about 10 million people in the 16th century, our Lady Guadalupe shows up in Mexico and brings almost that equal amount of Aztecs and other Mexican nations into the waters of baptism at the hands of the Franciscans who were crossing Mexico, mostly because of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So Europe loses 10 million Catholics and God fills his quota, so to speak, with 10 million Mexicans. This is how it works in history. You've heard me speak on previous um VLX is about liberal Catholics rejecting the gospel, and that's not my judgment of them. They tell you they don't even believe that the Bible is inerrant. They tell you they don't believe what St. Paul writes about the LMNOP stuff, about women. They will tell you they believe in a literary critical method of the Bible, which denies all of divine revelation. That's not me judging them. They will tell you they reject this. And what is God doing as all these progressive Catholics of the Western Hemisphere reject the gospel? God's appearing in dreams left and right to Muslims and bringing them to faith in Christ and baptism. Now, I'm not promoting Putin or Putin's Russia, but it's very interesting to me that the L.A. Dodgers recently stated, after much thoughtful feedback from our diverse communities, honest conversations with the Los Angeles Dodgers organization, and generous discussions with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, that's a blasphemous group, the Los Angeles Dodgers would like to offer their sincerest apologies and then they go on to say that basically they're trashing Catholics and giving this blasphemous group some advance in L.A. Dodgers organization and stadium. At the same time, something I'm putting on the screen now, Russian government shuts down 13 LMNOP bars in St. Petersburg, including one named Blue Oyster. One patron said it's kind of like an exorcism. So again, I'm not defending Putin or what he's doing, but it's very interesting that as the United States rejects Christ, many people in Eastern Europe and even Russia are returning to Christ and rejecting the ways of death. Now, my good traditional Catholic audience out there will say, yes, but it's not good enough to be Russian Orthodox. You have to be Catholic to be saved. 
I want to remind you that I had on my podcast Father Paul Kramer. I'm going to link the Rumble talk that him and I had about the papacy last year and Our Lady's Triumph and everything. It's my most viewed on Rumble, something like 24,000 views because he's such a wise, prophetic, older priest. And I'm going to link that again in the show notes. But one of the things I heard Father Paul Kramer say on an Eastern Catholics podcast that I found very fascinating is he said, and this is in regards to what we just talked about, Russia and Russian Orthodoxy. He pointed out that the country of Russia and the few or the growing amount of people who are taking Russian Orthodoxy seriously right there, because Russian Orthodoxy was persecuted by communism, but never modernism. Let me say that again. Russian Orthodoxy was greatly persecuted by communism, but it was never changed by, by modernism in its doctrine and especially not its liturgy. Russian Orthodox Divine Liturgy is about the same as it was in the 6th century. And we as Catholics, even if you're the most rad-trad traditional Catholic, believes they have seven valid sacraments. Even liberal Catholics should admit that the Russian Orthodox have seven valid sacraments. All the bishops of the United States would admit this, so this isn't a controversial thing. But Father Paul Kramer said, when the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary happens and Russia converts, they're going to have to change very little of their doctrine and liturgy to come into union with Rome. Please, God, we will have a good pope by that point. And at this point, we pray that the Russian Orthodox, their patriarchs and their metropolitans and all their faithful, will then come into union with that one good pope in Rome, hopefully the angelic, the angelic pope with the, uh, the great monarch. But if that happens, notice that Russian Orthodoxy doesn't need to return to some traditional liturgy. They already have it. They never had a Vatican II in Russian Orthodoxy. All they're going to have to do is accept the pope when we have that triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So Russia returning to Russian Orthodoxy that's nothing to be poo-pooed even by traditional Catholics. That is setting themselves up to return to this one church that Christ has established. And a good pope would not make them change any of their Eastern Rite divine liturgy. Schismatics are only that by their separation from the Holy See. And I do believe it was Padre Pio who said Russia will convert before the United States. So all these people returning to Christ in all these other countries we really should see all of these things as a win at this point. And very last thought, on this whole topic of evangelizing the highways and the byways, most of you know that the way that I like to do this is to bring a miraculous medal on a chain. That chain is super important because if you just give someone a miraculous medal without a chain, they might lose it, end up in the laundry. But 98 to 99% of the people that I offer, whether they're Catholic, non-Catholic, Christian, even Muslims, sometimes even atheists, 98, 99% of people that I will offer a miraculous medal to with a chain on it will take it, and most of them will even wear it. So that's kind of my way of teaching you and doing myself how to go into the highways and the byways. And I'm going to link a 10-minute segment on how I do that in the show notes so you can go look at that. Please say an Our Father from me at Benedictio de Omnipotentis, Patris Affidi, Spiritus Sancti, Descendit Super Vos, Maniat Semper. Amen. <laughs>